0: And thanks for listening. How
1: will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guest today is Joe Rome, the editor of the Climate Progress blog and a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Last year, Time Magazine named him the web's most influential climate change blogger. And this year, Time named him one of the top 25 bloggers in the country, along with Cake Wreck, Pitchfork, and Roger Ebert's Journal. Rome holds a Ph.D. in physics from MIT and was an official at the U.S. Department of Energy in the the Clinton administration. Climate administration. Uh, Please welcome Joe Rome to Climate One. Thank you. Joe, welcome. Thanks for coming.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Is cap-and-trade dead?
0: Uh, Yes, cap-and-trade is dead. And um, it's... I think uh, indication of how poor progressives and environmentalists are at messaging that anything was ever called cap-and-trade. No sane person who is trying to communicate and convince people to do something important builds their case around a process, uh, which is cap-and-trade, an arcane approach to addressing pollution um, the fact is that the goal is to is to uh, you know reduce p- pollution, promote clean energy, reduce our dependence on oil, and um, we uh, those of us who wanted uh, climate action built uh, a whole case around putting a price on carbon, making polluters pay, and I think there is a very persuasive case to make, and I think in fact the public in general supports it, but. Um, ironically, this policy, which actually came out of President Bush's father's administration, that's how we dealt with the acid rain pollution in the Clean Air Act, putting a price on pollution and letting uh, polluters trade amongst themselves to create the most efficient way to reduce pollution. This is pretty much, I would say, mainstream, moderate, business friendly approach. Um, but, you know, the conservative movement in this country has gone so far off the rails that they demagogue even the most business-friendly, moderate, Republican-oriented approach to dealing with our problems to the point where it becomes some sort of, you know, uh, a term that even very reasonable, moderate people uh, uh, can't really use anymore.
1: So you think it was the right policy prescription just poorly labeled?
0: Well, I think that there were, uh, I don't know if any, phrase would have worked in this political climate, to be honest with you. There's no question, if you want to reduce, we have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, and quickly and sharply, if we don't, uh, then our children and grandchildren are going to live in a, in, a, in a ruined climate and uh, will never forgive us and billions of people will needlessly suffer. I think the science is is pretty much indisputable that that is the most probable outcome if we keep doing nothing. Now, if you want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, most of which come from burning fossil fuels, your choices are very limited. I mean, you can either um, have government regulations which sort of tell you sector by sector, here's what you're going to do, various business, do it, Uh, which is an approach no one liked. That used to be called command and control. That was Mm -hmm. the demonized phrase by the right wing two decades ago. And as a result, um, a collection of moderate and reasonable people came up with this approach of pricing, putting a price on pollution. It's a very old economic idea. And um, that became the response to command and control. Instead of government telling each and every industry exactly what technology they're going to do, We're going to create a price on pollution. The government's going to tell you what's the right level of pollution. The marketplace is going to figure it out, what what the cheapest way to reduce is, um, using this this, uh, shrinking cap on pollution, which creates a rising price. This is the most efficient way to do it, according to the economists, and that ended up being called cap and trade. But those are really the two main ways. I mean, you can also put a price on pollution via a tax, And there's nothing particularly wrong with that. We've certainly done that in the past. Politically, uh, taxes are verboten in in the way the U.S. political system has evolved. Um, But there's no fundamental difference between creating a price to a tax or creating a price to a uh, so-called cap-and-trade system, uh, except, of course, that um, in in using the cap-and-trade system, the government doesn't pick the price. It picks the level of pollution that it determines is safe, and the marketplace picks the price. Um, and all the, re- the revenue doesn't actually go to the government, per se. It comes through the auction process. So,
1: But if cap-and-trade is dead, there's still a lot of environmental groups and Democrats still trying to at least go through the motions of, of getting a bill uh, passed through this Congress. Are they wasting their time? Why Are they... Do they not think it's dead? Are they delusional? What are they doing?
0: Well, there's many ways to, to skin this cat. Uh, I don't, in other words, I, I don't think the term cap-and-trade is, is particularly useful. I've, I haven't yet blogged on it. You can design a system that doesn't actually involve trading. The Cap-and-trade died for a couple of reasons, one of which is the entire conservative movement simply decided that they were going to label it as, as uh, tar and feather it. As as a tax.
1: They're going to call it a tax. As a tax
0: and as something that's grotesquely unreasonable to do. Uh, So that even formerly reasonable people like Carly Fiorina, uh, who supported it, now denounce it. And the same for Tim Pawlenty. Anybody who wants to get anywhere in the Republican Party has to pretend that global warming science is a crock and that reasonable market-oriented solutions are extremist, socialist, Anti-business solutions. So that's sort of reason number one. Reason number two was the Wall Street meltdown. So that markets used to be a good thing, and now people aren't so sure that markets are 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 a good thing. And so, a lot of people, you know, worked on ways to figure out how to design this system so that in fact it can't be gamed on Wall Street. Nobody really wants, you know, uh, uh, any of the Wall Street firms to get rich doing this.
1: but it might be foolish to think that anything's going to pass that they oppose.
0: Well, uh, right now, uh, because of this uh, extra-constitutional supermajority requirement that you can't do anything, the federal government can't pass any major piece of legislation without 60 votes in the Senate, the country is near ungovernable on major problems. You, In the state of California, you have the supermajority uh, requirement. It essentially makes... you know it it allows minority to hold hostage and and basically hold their breath until everyone else's turns blue so i think that um unfortunately as i said i think the conservative movement has decided that that it is willing to destroy the climate and and the for future generations to score some short-term political points and i think it's a it's a great tragedy i also think it's that, that, that President Obama and his team have, have failed to make the persuas- persuasive political case, and, th- and that was a political choice they make, which I think is, is, a, is a serious error, and I think it will, it will be remembered as, as the single biggest mistake of the entire Obama administration.
1: Interesting. Uh, so if an omnibus, all-inclusive energy or climate bill is not going to happen, how about a, there's talk now of a sectoral approach, just uh, the utility sector or perhaps an energy bill that went through Senator Bingaman's committee. Is there a, is a possibility that a little piece will get through if the whole thing, uh, the old enchilada doesn't get through?
0: Yeah, I mean, the House of Representatives last year passed a comprehensive energy and climate bill uh, that, 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 uh, that Henry Waxman was, was the chief leader on. Um, and uh, now there's no prospect of that or anything like it passing passing through the Senate. We will find out in the next two or three weeks whether a very watered-down version that only regulates emissions in the electric utility sector can be put into an energy bill, but uh, I think right now, with with the uh, entire Republican Party doesn't even vote for extending unemployment benefits, so... The likelihood that you're going to get very many votes for something that, that, that uh, is less transparently a necessary thing you know, is small. Um, so I, I think it is unlikely at this point that there is going to be – there's certainly no chance that there's going to be a comprehensive energy bill. In the sense of, of addre- doing what's needed to address climate, there's just no. It's just not going to happen. Um, there remains some possibility that we could get uh, a a regulation in the electric utility sector, and it remains well worth uh, you know pushing as hard as possible. Certainly, uh, you know uh, California senators uh, uh, have been working very hard uh, for this, and they've they've been you know uh, great.
1: But you don't think Obama's been working very hard for this, or his people haven't made this a priority?
0: Uh, I think that um, President Obama has done spectacular things in his first year on clean energy. The stimulus was the single biggest uh, clean energy funding and investment effort uh, in U.S. history. And he... The deal that he announced with the automakers to reduce greenhouse to make vehicles more fuel efficient was the single biggest reduction in greenhouse gases in U.S. history. And his decision to find the EPA to find that the uh, uh, you know that uh, carbon dioxide is a danger to public health and welfare and needs to be regulated. These are all very big deals. But we need a, a, a national. a a bill to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And the fact is that the president has failed to explain that clearly. Uh, He has failed to sort of give the big speech. He's failed to campaign for it and lobby for it the way he did health care reform. Why? Uh, Why has he failed to do it? Um, you're at the
1: Center for American Progress, I mean, I am. which has
0: inside tracks into the administration. I am, uh, and and uh, uh, I work. I work for John Podesta, uh, who, who who was re-
1: chair of the the transition he was, team. He
0: was chair of the transition team, and he, one of the reasons I went to the center. In fact, because is because Podesta is one of the few. You know, serious, serious people in in Washington D.C. who really understands global warming and really understands clean energy. Um, I don't think there's any one answer as to why the administration has not pushed climate as much as possible. I think there are a couple of answers. Um, one of which is is that is that much of the progressive and environmental community and the political Progressives have become convinced that global warming is not a politically winning issue. Uh, I think I'm quite certain they're wrong about that, but they have been persuaded by bad polling uh, that they shouldn't talk about global warming. You're talking
1: about David Axelrod and and Rahm Emanuel. I'm
0: talking about David Axelrod and 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 Rahm Emanuel. And I've written I wrote a a blog post uh, on climate progress uh, 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 titled the the unbearable lameness of being uh, Rahm Emanuel and David Axelrod. Um, and, uh, yeah, they... they the, the interesting thing is, I mean, look, if you don't spend a lot of time on the climate issue, then you don't realize that it's the trans uh, transcendental issue of our time, that, that it, is, it is going to swallow all other issues over the course of the lifetime of most people who are listening To my words today, over the next 10 to 20 years, it's just going to eat up every other issue and overwhelm it. And by, let's say, the end of the 2020s, it's going to be the driving force behind all national and international energy, economic, environmental, and political policy. There's no question about that. So if you don't know that, then you end up thinking it's just another issue to be gamed and gauged politically. And that's where your David Axelrods and your Rahm Emanuel's are. I think the president gets... The issue. If you read all of his speeches, he's been pretty clear that he understands the importance of climate change and clean energy. But the, the, the powers that be on the messaging side became convinced that the only thing you could talk about was clean energy jobs and energy independence. And that's what most of the messaging has been. Um, on. And it's been very effective. I mean, if you look at the polling, the public wants a clean energy bill. There's no question about it. They they don't like to keep spending a billion dollars a day to buy oil from other countries.
1: But does the public want a clean energy bill if their rates will go up a little bit or the price of gas will go up a little
0: bit? Uh, It's a very good question. Most of the polling suggests that they do. Uh, that they will support that. Uh, I don't mean 99% of the public, but I mean, I mean a majority, even a majority of independents, uh, because they know, I think, uh, a basic truth, which, which a lot of politicians don't seem to get. Your energy prices are going to go up anyway. We're not making more oil. And I'm, you know, on Climate Progress, I spend a lot of time talking about peak oil. I don't have any doubt that everyone in this room is going to live to see $4 gallon gasoline and then $5 and probably considerably higher than that.
1: Just got to go to Europe, that's all.
0: Yeah. Well, in, and, and some countries have been smart enough to price gasoline so that, they, you know, uh, so that other forms of transportation become competitive. This country has, has been myopic in that regard. But the higher prices for energy are coming. Um, and uh, so the choice is not, and, and I think this is the, sort of the single biggest misunderstanding of most people who don't follow this issue. We are going to transform the entire national and global economy to clean energy. There's no question about that. By, the, uh, you know, uh, by mid-century, that is going to be where every nation is. The only question is whether we happen to be smart enough to do it proactively and fast enough to avoid a thousand years of, of destroyed climate and To put the U.S. in a leadership position where we might actually create jobs and be be a leader in industries that, in fact, technologies we invented. We invented the modern solar cell 50 years ago in Bell Laboratories. We make a few percent of solar cells because uh, of the unwillingness of, of the federal government over the years and particularly the conservative movement to support continuously uh, uh, through research and development and, 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 and standards, the, the embrace of a clean energy economy. So the point is, we're going to have a clean energy economy. That is a certainty, because we're not making more fossil fuels, and over the next decade or two, the, the painful reality of climate change is going to become obvious to everybody, even Rush Limbaugh. So there's no escape from it you can the only thing that the that the forces of disinformation can do is keep us from doing it long enough so that, we can't, so that it is virtually impossible to stop catastrophic global warming. But they can't stop the inevitability of the clean energy future, and every other sane government in the world knows this, and that's why Japan and China and South Korea and Europe are all scrambling to invest as much money as is possible to become the leader in what is going to be the biggest job creating industry of this century, which is low-carbon technologies.
1: You mentioned uh, big investment. Uh, Bill Gates, I believe, is out there with others calling for some big federal dollars injected into to R&D. It just gets into sort of the technotopia argument that technology will save us. Maybe we don't need a uh, price on carbon or policy, that if we put enough money into R&D, that American innovation will create the tools to, to solve this.
0: Yes, one of the great delusions of our time. Um, I'm a big believer in technology, i went. I got a PhD in physics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, uh, There is no question that that, uh, much of the solution to global warming resides in technology. The problem is just that we have dawdled for so long that if we don't massively start deploying the low-carbon technology we have today, it simply will be too late to sit around and wait and cross our fingers for some breakthrough to occur in the next two decades. Um, so you the, don't
1: oppose r and d you just think it's not good don't put all our chips on that
0: no. I, um, I for for three years i ran i helped run the largest r and d research, development, demonstration, and deployment program in the entire world, the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. Um, I spent two decades begging people to give us more money for R&D. R&D. More money for R&D would have been great 15 or 20 years ago when you know, President Reagan came in and slashed Carter's clean energy R&D budget, 85%, and basically handed leadership in clean energy to the rest of the world. That would have been great. It'd still be useful now because we're going to need new technologies in 10 in, you know, in 20 or 30 years, but um, we need to deploy every last piece of low-carbon technology we have today if we're going to give the next generation a fighting chance for this. And the other point that I make on, on climate progress a great deal is that if you want to lower the costs of clean energy technology, the way to do it is to deploy technology. Cost-cutting occurs in the marketplace through people learning what works and what doesn't work and through economies of scale. The amount of cost-cutting that occurs because of laboratory R&D is small. It's not non-existent. R&D is very, very valuable. But again, you if you want to cut costs, it is through mass deployment. And
1: here, some people think the military can play a role as being, you know, typically people think of military spinning out technology. Now there's a term, military spinning in technology, where they can be a massive buyer and help buy down the cost of batteries, solar cells, cetera. Do you think there's uh, promise in that path of military as a big consumer to drive down the cost.
0: If if the government were willing to spend the money, there's no question that federal procurement is is a very very big deal. Uh, the, it was federal procurement that 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 maintained the solar energy industry through very very expensive. It was NASA. I mean, NASA to a large extent, the use of solar cells uh, is is what kept the money coming in uh, and kept the 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 uh, uh, industry alive. Uh, as the price came down. So there's no question that that the federal government can play a role here. But when you look at the scale of what is needed to address our climate problem and our peak oil problem, we're going to need a lot more than just federal procurement. We're going to need the entire economy aggressively purchasing clean energy technologies. That's why you want to have a price on pollution.
1: But if there's not going to be a price in the next couple of years, uh, and it looks like we, maybe we should touch on the international process, which seems stalled uh, at this point, uh, is it possible that the calculation inside the White House is wait for a second term where they can push hard for something and they don't have to worry about getting reelected?
0: Uh, well, it's, one can spend a long time trying to figure out the calculations of, 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 of other people. I, I really don't think – I think historically – uh, when a major piece of legislation fails politically, it doesn't usually come back quickly. Uh, look at the health care reform uh, of Hillary decades. Clinton.
1: Yeah, someone said to me the other day that cap-and-trade's dead for 15 or 20 years. Now, maybe it's yeah, another tool. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. Well, I don't,
0: uh, I don't know if it's 15 or 20 years because a lot of bad stuff I mean, the, the, the painful obviousness of, of global warming is going to increase over the next 10 years. I don't know that, that um, uh, we'll be able to do nothing for 10 years. On the other hand, uh, I wouldn't underestimate the forces of disinformation. I mean, the fact is that they, you know, the, the, the disinformation campaign against global warming is the single most successful disinformation campaign in human history. Um, and its participants will be remembered and vilified for centuries to come. I mean, it's just... But one shouldn't underestimate the amount of money they have. Look what they've done with Proposition 23, outside big oil interests coming in, trying to shut down one of the most important pieces of clean energy and, and environmental legislation in the world, with AB 32. Um, and uh, the, 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 the fossil fuel... Uh, industry has a staggering amount of money. I mean the, they have hundreds of billions of dollars, and they are willing to use it to hold on desperately to another ten or twenty years of 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 their addicted clients and they 're better at messaging they spend a lot of time on messaging uh, they poll test phrases and and marketing campaigns, and frankly, our side doesn 't doesn't do that as much because it operates under the delusion that, that the truth will set people free and that a few more facts and, and statistics uh, is what it takes uh, to, to, to convince people to transform the entire economy of the United States.
1: But there are people on the Republican side who have stood up. John Warner, uh, longtime Republican from, I believe, Virginia, was authored a bill with Lieberman that, that didn't go in the Senate. Um, you write favorably about Eric Pooley, who uh, in his book writes about uh, the climate war, writes about uh, Senator Libby Dole, who stood up at a key point uh, in the Warner-Lieberman's debate and took on some very powerful interests in South Carolina, particularly Duke Energy, and, and voted for the Warner-Lieberman bill. So you know, who, you know, it's not so you know, black and white as good guys, bad guys. There are people on the, in the Republican, the right, who are trying to, to move this, aren't there?
0: You know, I think I think it's important. I've tried not to make it as a partisan issue. I, I, I think obviously the climate, the health and well-being of our children, clean air, clean water, ought not to be partisan issues. Um, and outside of the Washington D.C. Beltway, it's obviously not a partisan issue. AB32 was a bipartisan bill, and Governor Schwarzenegger um, was and you know is probably the single greatest. Champion that, that the climate uh, has a, has has in this country. So it is, uh, however, the case that the that the Republican Party inside the Beltway is driven by its its most extremist elements, and it has created a litmus test on global warming and on climate action that that forces, as I say, even reasonable people like Fiorina, like Tim Pawlenty. Uh, to
1: governor of Minnesota, governor of
0: Minnesota, to to back off from their previous support for cap and trade. Um, you have the a, a candidate running for the GOP ticket in Massachusetts, a guy who's got a, a, an MBA and otherwise touts his intelligence. Was asked about whether humans cause global warming, and he said, "I'm I'm absolutely not smart enough to know the answer to that question." So. Um, you know, it is a very unfortunate situation, and it represents a catastrophic failure in messaging by scientists, environmentalists, and progressives. Um, and that's why I spend a lot of time on climate progress, talking about messaging, and I s- try to talk to as many people as possible to to try to figure out what the the best message uh, uh, is. But right now, it has become a polarized, partisan issue uh, inside the Washington D.C. Beltway, uh, or by anybody who wants to run for statewide office.
1: Joe Rome is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and we're discussing climate change in his blog Climate Progress here at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change... Got, uh, certainly roughed up last year before Copenhagen, et cetera. And then the U.S. academies, the National Academy of Science, the National Academy of Engineering came out with some reports that were supposed to say, well, these are American scientists, never mind those Brits who, you know, their sloppy emails and, and the Europeans. What impact did that have on, on the scientific debate? The National Academy saying, so here's our American science.
0: Well, we haven't talked much about the media. Uh, I, I spent a lot more time, or I probably spent as much time on, on climate progress uh, uh, on the f- great failings of the media than I do the political system because I, I, the, the fact that the conservative movement opposes regulations and the environment is old news and, and it wouldn't matter so much except that the media is so catastrophically bad on this issue and, and has treated climate science as if it were a he-said-she-said said political issue. Uh, and as such, the public remains, I think, very uninformed um the, the mainstream media in this country doesn't treat climate science as if it were the issue of the century. I mean, Eric Pooley is an exception. You had Eric Pooley here. I would certainly urge people to read his book, uh, to watch the video that you did with him. Uh, here's a guy who figured out that, that climate the global warming was the issue uh, of the century, was the story of the century, and that he was going to become knowledgeable on it and, and write about it.
1: He devoted three years of his life uh, writing a book about it.
0: But the rest of the media is, in the, is has been firing science reporters, firing environmental reporters, uh, handing this off to issue to people who don't understand it or who are political reporters and who treat it strictly like a, well... Conservatives say this, progressives say this, we can't possibly know the answer. So in that world, sadly, uh, what, what happened uh, when, when uh, a bunch of emails were stolen is that it got treated as if it were a political issue, as if it were a sensationalistic story. And uh, when real science comes out, the media is, is by and large uninterested. So yes, the most prestigious, prestigious body in this country, the National Academy of Sciences, which is basically a very conservative organization, it doesn't, it doesn't make radical pronouncements at all. It's a lot like the U.S. Supreme Court. And so yes, when, when the National Academy of Sciences says that, that the reality that humans are changing the climate is, is a, the, almost the equivalent of an established scientific fact, and that continuing to do nothing about emissions risks uh, a number of grave consequences, it's a very big deal, but you simply will find you know, one, one hundredth of the st- stories on that, as you will on uh, you know, various pieces of, of emails that, that were misinterpreted and spun by the, the, the people who spread disinformation.
1: Joe Rome is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He's our guest here at Climate One. Uh, you write in your book uh, an interesting comparison uh, of talking about the media here and how they've been sort of uh, – they, they there's the uh, balance bias, which is the idea you have to give things equal weight. You know, you give uh, – uh, Uh, Creative intelligent design and evolution the same weight, or something like that. Uh, You write about uh, some stories uh, in three different news agencies and how they discussed uh, the drought in Australia, whereas the AP, my former employer, uh, talked about 600,000 fires deliberately lit or suspicious. Whereas Agence France-Presse and Reuters talked about the climate change drivers, I thought that's really interesting. Where the U.S. news agency took a very didn't really want to touch climate, and the European news agencies had a different view.
0: Yeah, well, there's many ways you can screw up climate media coverage. And my, my parents were both journalists. My father was a newspaper editor for 30 years. Um, and uh, he would write an opinion three days a week uh, three days uh, three times a day for thirty years and um, that's one of the I, I say say in my book straight up, I, I was never intending to become a writer because I saw how poorly writers were treated and how poorly journalists were treated by their bosses and, and i 've ended up becoming uh, a professional writer again uh, <laughs> uh, like my father um, the the media screws up the story in several ways, uh, one of which is it, it, even though 97, 98 percent of scientists, uh, climate scientists, understand that sci- humans are changing the climate, uh, the media doesn't give a 98-2 story. They give an even, even 50-50 uh, and give pr- people who are total, totally discredited uh, in terms of they've pushed this information, they keep repeating things that have been proven untrue. They give them equal time with serious climate scientists. Um, and let me just say as an aside, the last scientific paper that Stephen Schneider wrote was this st- paper for the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in which he documented this fact that 97% um, that, you know, 98% of, 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 of um climate scientists and the papers they write advance the theory of human-caused global warming and that you have this small number of papers that don't, and not only do you have a small number of papers and scientists advancing this fringe idea, but they're not papers that get cited a lot. These are not scientists who who, uh, show up a lot in citation indices, which is a measure of how high-quality their colleagues view their work. So you have this grave imbalance... Uh, which is characteristics, uh, characteristic of how science works when you evolve towards a well-understood theory that humans are changing the climate. Um, but the media treats it 50-50 because the media likes drama-driven personality stories. That's the way the media has evolved. Um, so one way you can screw up the media coverage is, is with this fake balance. Uh, another way you can screw up the story is to not tell the public that something that climate scientists have been predicting for two or three decades, like you keep pouring heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere, you're going to get more heat waves. Uh, wet areas are going to see more precipitation, because as you heat up the climate, you're putting more water vapor into the atmosphere, and that water vapor will come down in more intense storms. And as you heat up the planet, dry areas are going to become drier, because you're, you're basically uh, 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 reducing the amount of soil moisture. Australia in particular is the canary in the coal mine uh, for what the southwest of the United States is going to experience because Australia is the most arid, habited continent in the world. It already lived at the edge, and it has been experiencing a 12- to 13-year, once-in-a-thousand-year drought. And in parts of Australia, you know, kids were showering uh, for two minutes, and they were collecting the water and that's what they would use to water lawns if they wanted to do that. So huge, tremendous drought leading to terrible wildfires and other prediction of climate science. And it got reported in, uh, around the world. And, and international news agencies tended to mention the fact that uh, scientists had predicted that you would see longer heat waves and droughts and wildfires. And in the U.S., this wasn't mentioned. Um, so, yeah, that's the, sort of the second way that you can screw up media coverage is to not tell people that, that, um, that the changes they're seeing now, the destruction of Nashville by a once-in-a-thousand-year deluge, uh, a staggering event, uh, nine, didn't get a lot of coverage, in part because it occurred around the beginning of the BP oil spill and around the New York City terrorism event, but what coverage it did have didn't mention... The, the fact that that, that that human-caused global warming makes deluges more destructive. But part of
1: that is because scientists are very careful to say you can't connect any particular instance to climate change, whether it's Katrina or Nashville or anything else.
0: Yeah, there's no question that uh, uh, individual weather events cannot be directly ascribed to, to global warming. Um, but you can put a couple of, of fine points on that, one of which, of course, is that... Is that Basically, what, what warming the planet does is it loads the dice, and it makes extreme events more likely.
1: So you have Australia and Nashville and Katrina and all these things, yeah. and pretty soon you say there's a pattern here.
0: Yeah, and in fact, statistically, one of the things I like to do on, the, on climate progress is put up the statistics of record highs versus record lows. Because there was a major study by the National Center for Atmospheric Research which showed that we're seeing a greater and greater ratio of, of record highs to record lows. Um, But the other point, and and I did an extended interview of Kevin Trenberth, who's who's the head of climate analysis for for the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and one of the points he makes is this water vapor issue, which is just that that, um, every degree Fahrenheit that you warm up uh, the oceans is another 4% increase in atmospheric moisture content. And these superstorms they sweep in moisture from vast areas, you know, hundreds if not uh, over 1,000 miles away. So the point that Trendberth made in this interview uh, is that uh, not only are you making extreme weather events more likely, but each weather event that you see is, is more likely to have a lot more water vapor entrained in it and come down in these deluges. And that's why we are seeing staggering rainstorms. I mean, uh, uh, we, there, uh, last month, a part of China saw two feet of rain in six hours. And Oklahoma City was hit by this, Georgia was hit by this, the Northeast was hit by this. These storms are devastating. They are devastating because the system can't respond to them. You also, we have this combined sewage stormwater so that uh, when you get the massive rainstorms, you get sewage overflowing, so it creates public health hazard you overwhelm the, the, the uh, levees or, or whatever system is built up to, to protect the city from flooding. And we ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, the important thing for people to realize is that, you know, in the last half century, we've only warmed up about a, about a degree Fahrenheit. On our current path of, of business as usual, we just keep pouring out more and more greenhouse gas emissions. We are likely to warm eight or nine degrees Fahrenheit this century eight to nine times as much this century as we did in the last half century. It's going to so radically change the climate that no one's going to recognize it. James Hansen of NASA says we'll be creating a different planet. Uh, You know, Bill McKibben titled his book Earth, and he put in an extra A in it, because the planet would be unrecognizable by the end of this century.
1: Joe Rome is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and blogger at Climate Progress. Like you'd invite you to come up to the microphone now if you'd like to uh, ask a question of mr. Rome um- We haven't talked much yet about business, and Jeff Immelt, the CEO of General Electric, was in town last week, and he basically said, look, a price on carbon would help move things, but we're going ahead anyways, and there's a lot of talk about environment and the science, but there's a certain business argument that there's money to be had, savings to be made here, uh, and companies like GE are going after it anyway, so... I'd like to your response on sort of the pure economic argument and how it's a little cleaner and less politically divisive than the stuff we've been talking about.
0: Yeah, well, and 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Cool Companies, uh, how the best businesses were boosting profits and productivity by cutting greenhouse gas emissions. It has made business sense to reduce greenhouse gas emissions for a long time on the energy efficiency side, no question about it. And the smart businesses figured out that we're going to do this clean energy transformation so, we should make the products and, and create the jobs. Um, no question about it. So, you're Jeff Immelt. He's put a lot of money into it. The question is in the short term, are the industries and jobs going to be built here? I'm sure he mentioned the fact he's building factories and research development centers in China. So, if, you know, the, the, our great understanding of competitiveness from Michael Porter is that markets develop. I mean, industries develop where the market is. If, if the reason why AB32 is so important to the future of California is that it will determine whether California is one of the world's leader in clean energy jobs or a laggard, and whether you create the jobs and in industries of the future or whether when we event, eventually get serious about global warming, we end up importing it. So um, there's no question there is a business case There's a business case to clean up your act, but if you want to avoid catastrophic global warming, you have to accelerate this process uh, much faster than the business world is going to do it by itself.
1: It's no coincidence, perhaps, that the four of the startup electric companies are all based here in California, Fisker, Coda, Tesla, and Better Place. Question from the audience, please.
0: Yes, BP has been in the solar business since 1973, manufacturing solar modules in the U.S., Mexico, Poland, China, and India. More recently, they've made significant uh, plays in both biofuels and wind energy. I'm wondering what you think it takes to restore the reputation of the fourth largest company in the world to be beyond petroleum in light of the Gulf of Mexico tragedy. Yeah, we were going to talk about BP more. I'm sorry. We, we, yeah. uh, I think that... Um, British Petroleum has demonstrated itself to be a wildly reckless company, uh, and uh, I don't know that it could repair its its image anytime soon. I, I think it has made so many blunders after the disaster. But my guess is that when all the litigation is done, they will be found guilty of gross negligence. I think we know enough. If you saw the 60 minute story, or or or, or read all the newspapers closely. Um, they invested in clean energy under under Lord Brown, and they took an aggressive greenhouse gas stand under him. But they have walked away from a lot of their clean energy business and invested heavily, for instance, in the Canadian tar sands, which is one of the dirtiest uh, 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 forms of fuel that you can imagine. Um, so I think that... Um, if, B, if British Petroleum is smart, when it figures out how to clean up its act, it will realize that it ought to get back seriously into the clean energy business. But I think right now, uh, it has so, you know, ruined its reputation for, for good reasons. Uh, uh, its reputation has been ruined. Um, that that I, don't, I don't think all, you know, I don't think all the king's horses and all the king's men can put Humpty Dumpty back together again.
1: Good point. We have a lot of questions, so let's try to get through the questions and the answers quickly. Yes, sir. Hello. uh, Steve Kuttner. Uh, I'm a consultant with Foundation Wind Power. It seems to me that our policies have the effect of actually stimulating demand for fossil fuels um, at a time when the United States, coincidentally or not, is at a sort of a peak relative military power globally, and we have an economy which some people say, is based on a military Keynesianism. It seems to me we're talking about enormous changes here. George Lakoff said, you know, in framing this issue, if we talk about global warming, we're talking about something we can control. If we talk about climate, we talk about something we can't control. I'm just sort of wondering, what's your thought about changing the momentum on the messaging?
0: Well, I think it is, it is safe to say that nobody has figured out the best message on, on, on global warming. Um, I think the, it, there's no question... Uh, Green
1: jobs, you say, is pretty good.
0: What? Green jobs. Well, I think uh, that uh, the message of clean energy jobs, energy independence, reducing pollution, I think these are, are, are very good messages. But the situation is considerably more dire than... Uh, can be addressed by, by frankly, happy talk. So that is a great challenge. There's no question that that is the greatest challenge that the human race faces. It's the greatest challenge that everybody in, in this room faces, in that um, the solution to this is a World War II style and World War II scale effort of deployment. Uh, the reason... I remain optimistic, is, uh, cyber, you know, having run the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy and spent, written many books and talked to the leading experts on the subject, I don't have any doubt that we have the uh, ingenuity and the resources to solve the problem. We just completely lacked the will. Uh, and worse than that, we have a large fraction of the public that has been, uh, you know, a victim of a massive disinformation campaign, which is ongoing, So uh, we need a a scale of effort that we haven't seen for 60 years. Um, So, you know, I'm happy that people are talking about clean energy jobs. I spent two decades doing that, and I'm happy people are talking about reducing oil consumption. Uh, I actually switched from spending 95% of my time talking about clean energy and 5% talking about global warming to, you know, half and half because uh, we, we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 80 90% in four decades, replace the entire energy system of the rich countries in four decades, and replace about half the energy system of the developing countries in the same amount of time. It is a massive effort. So um, people need to understand the only reason we're going to do that is because the alternative is the self-destruction of modern civilization as we've come to know it, um, uh, with a tragic consequence for many billions of people. So I, I don't pull any punches in, in my blog. I, I try to lay out the sciences as clearly and as bluntly as possible. I, I don't think there's anyone who talks to climate scientists who don't understand the dire nature of the problem and that the scale of effort goes way beyond... Sp- passing energy bills that spend a few billion dollars on clean energy.
1: Joe Rome is blogger at Climate Progress. Next question, please.
0: Yes, uh, this is Lewis Bloomberg with the Nature Conservancy. The uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports that about – Deforestation and land use change account for about 15 percent of annual greenhouse gas emissions. Yet the planet is has about 30 percent of the planet is covered, of uh, the terrestrial um, biome is covered with with forests. So they don't really lend themselves to any single cap with multiple owners and so forth. So I wonder what role do you think um, stopping deforestation should play in a comprehensive
1: greenhouse gas reduction strategy, and what uh, actions, policies, or programs should be put in place to do that.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's a central component. I think if you if you talk uh, if you study the issue of of how you get near term emissions reductions, the among the fastest things that you can do is stopping deforestation. Um, You do have to create some sort of market incentive. You you the there is a great value in not deforesting. Um, The point of creating a global deal was to create a pool of fund whereby the pool of funds, whereby the rich countries could, could essentially uh, uh, give money to poorer countries to not destroy uh, uh, the, the, the rainforest. Uh, the good news is that Brazil has finally gotten serious about this, and so has Indonesia. and I think that there is a real prospect of seeing deforestation slow down, but bringing a complete halt to it, I think would, would require a, a, a global deal. Which, which, you know, we're not, uh, we're not close to at this point. But there's no question that stopping deforestation is, is a, a, a central, a centerpiece of, of avoiding uh, catastrophic global warming.
1: Yes, sir. I'm Hank Ryan from Small Business California. Hi, Joe. Uh, I, I, you mentioned happy talk, and I think it's
0: time for some happy talk. Um, one thing we in America do very well is drive cars. We also like to buy them, and hopefully we like to build them. And there's a particular kind of car that's coming now that I think offers some hope, and I'd like you to talk about that. Uh, sure. sure. Plug-in vehicles. Yeah. Like- um, you know, I, uh, uh, I think that um, advanced the next generation of technology that, that is at our doorsteps – Clean, uh, renewable energy and, and uh, electrification of the transportation system are cornerstones of solution to, to global warming. There's no question about that. Replacing uh, – f- uh, uh, eliminating carbon pollution in the electric utility sector is very straightforward. We know lots of different technologies that generate electricity and that don't generate carbon pollution. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy to do. I, I try not to use the word easy, but it is certainly is straightforward. In the transportation sector, oil is is a very uniquely desirable fuel. It just has a lot of energy in it. It's easy to mo- uh, you know transport around. Um, I don't think there's any question that the car to future is, is electrifying the transportation system, starting with plug-in hybrids but also pure electrics. Advances in batteries, I think, have been tremendous. Um, so... Uh, Electrifying the transportation system as fast as we can is a very important strategy. I will say that if you don 't put in a price uh, a, a shrinking cap on carbon pollution you 're going to end up with um, uh, a transportation system which is cleaner than today, but it 's not going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions so I mean plug in hybrids are an enabling technology they enable you to replace oil with electricity but if you don't put in a price on carbon, you're not going to clean up the electric grid of the country. Um, I mean, there's no question that plug in hybrid electric cars are more efficient inherently. So they're going to be cleaner than your average car on the road. And particularly in the state of California, whose electric grid has half the CO2 emissions per kilowatt hour than the rest of the country. So running electric car in California is very good for global warming. And it it enables intermittent renewables because we get a lot of wind power at night, and that's when you're most logically going to be charging up your car. So it helps solve the, 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 the storage problem for renewables. So I'm a very, very big fan of plug-in hybrids, and I think governments need to do everything uh, that they can to, to advance them into the marketplace.
1: Next question, please.
0: Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm Heidi. I work for a carbon software company. And my question is, if we need to do something immediately and cap and trade is dead and renewables are going to be very slow, um, what other, you know, is in your top one or two or three list of things that we in this room and in the nation can really get behind and work on? I mean, should we be, you know, really fighting for AB32 and trying to get the Western Climate Initiative and other subnational initiatives going?
1: Should it be forests, or is there something else? Thank you.
0: Sure. Um, Well, I don't think there's anything more important that Californians can do than than kill Proposition 23 by as large a margin as possible to send a message. Um, Look, anybody who wants to save the climate in this country, wants to pass legislation, is going to have to transform politics in this country so that there is a political cost to trying to destroy the climate. If there's no cost politically, to opposing action on climate. If there's no political cost to opposing clean energy, then why would the politicians who have succeeded doing those things change? They get lots of money from the fossil fuel industry, which has a staggering amount of money, in which the Supreme Court uh, has made it even easier to give them money. So you know, I, I think you need uh, to create a single-issue voter movement around climate and clean energy. It's that simple. Now, in the case of California, you've got uh, a bunch of candidates and and a ballot initiative, which will tell the nation and the world whether the state of California is prepared to uh, uh, put a political penalty for those who callously disregard the health and well-being of everyone's children and grandchildren, including mine and including yours. And it is just morally unconscionable to oppose moderate action like ab32 on global warming it is morally unconscionable to spread disinformation to tell people in a crowded burning room that there's nothing wrong and they should sit there and keep doing nothing
1: James Hansen uh, came up with the idea some time ago that people who knowingly perpetuate this fossil fuels, he used pretty strong language, uh, crimes against humanity. I don't know if he had a mechanism for assigning that, but basically the idea that people who knowingly per- perpetuate this are, are guilty of those sorts of things. I don't.
0: Yeah, it's strong? tricky. The, the global warming disinformers, they, they like to have. They want to be called names so they can rise up and say, oh, you're calling us names, you're not treating us seriously. I, I use the term disinformer. Some people use denier. Uh, then they get upset, oh, you're comparing us to Holocaust deniers, um, which I, I don't think... That, it isn't the act of denial that's their prim- primary activity that bothers me. If, if all they did was deny stuff, it wouldn't bother me. They spread disinformation and, and, and mislead uh, people... Um, and uh, but when I write climate progress and and I write with a very strong uh, bent it's I think one of the reasons why the the blog has been so successful is is that there is a great desire great hunger out there for the truth Um, I try to think of what future generations are going to say about us. And I can assure you that they are going to use much harsher language than I or anybody else is using today. I, I think that uh, certainly no one's going to be writing books entitled The Greatest Generation about us. I mean, when you look at the economics, to avert catastrophic global warming <coughs> requires spending about 2 to 3% of our wealth differently than we now do doesn't require flushing that money down the toilet. It just requires shifting that investment from dirty, inefficient, polluting stuff to clean, uh, efficient energy. And um, the failure to do so is going to be remembered for decades and centuries to come. And the people who were trying to stop the world from acting are going to re- be remembered um, for a very long time to come. So I think you know, we can't do too much today um, I don't, again, I don't, I don't think, uh, uh, I, I think the most important thing for those of us uh, who, who understand the science and the clean energy possibility is to speak it as clearly as possible. But we're in a tough political climate, and I don't think we can avoid dealing with those who are spreading disinformation and, and, and calling, calling them out on it.
1: Our guest at Climate One today is blogger Joe Rome. Next question, please. Hi. In the interest of this movement, um, I'm dating a climate skeptic, and um, is she I, here or he? No, here no. It? Okay, <laughs> um, why not? Her father works for GM. What do I say to someone who's bright, scientific, engineering, who doesn't believe that global warming is caused by humans?
0: Yeah, it's um, uh, it's it's a funny world that we live in. That that we've created a class of. We've named a class of gases greenhouse gases, and apparently people think we call them greenhouse gases for reasons other than the fact that they trap heat like a greenhouse. Um, and, um, but, you know, I, I would say to her, I mean, you, every response is different. I, I, you can go to climateprogress.org. I, I talk about dealing with the skeptics. I would certainly urge people to go to the website Skeptical Science... There's even an iPhone app for it. He goes through the top ten arguments by the disinformers and and rebuts them. Um, You know, I I think it's important for her to understand that that she is – you don't have to feel stupid. She's been victimized by one of the most effective – you know, the most effective disinformation campaign in human history, one which has borrowed the tactics from the tobacco industry – to which, which wrote a famous memo decades ago called Doubt is Our Product. Um, if you, you, should, you should take her to see the movie Thank You for Smoking. Um, you know, look, the people spreading disinformation, they have a much easier job. They're trying to convince people to do nothing, uh, which is always easier. And, of course, they don't have to tell the truth. And it's much easier to make a compelling narrative if you can make crap up then, if you are stuck to scientific reasoning and and the peer-reviewed literature, um, which is you know uh, uh, has lots of uncertainties and 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 one has to put a lot of a lot of caveats in, um, so it, you know it's a great challenge. On the other hand, I think um, the consequences of inaction are so grave that I, I I I think it's morally incumbent on everyone who understands the science to try to understand the best way to communicate it. I think, as I say, I think everybody is different. I, I will say this, that it's, it's, you know, the vast majority of people I meet are quite open to, to being persuaded by the facts. Um, I, I do think there is a large, there is a segment that uh, believe that the solution is so anathema, which is to say government-led promotion of clean energy and setting a price on pollution, that that it's going to be very hard to convince them. And I I certainly wouldn't waste a lot of time trying to persuade people who are unpersuadable. But the vast majority of people that I meet are are, are persuadable. And I I would just urge, you know, go go through the National Academy of Sciences has some good things on this. Um, As I say, the website Skeptical Science has, has a lot of good debunking at a very basic science level.
1: And bring her to a Climate One program next time, please. Next question. I'm Satwant Jain with Citizens Climate Lobby. If President Obama gets it, do you think he should use the hammer of the EPA ruling that CO2 is a pollutant to mandate a carbon cap or a carbon tax with or fee with dividend?
0: Yeah, there's no question that if there's no climate bill, that that uh, under the you know the Supreme Court in 2007 found that. Uh, uh, carbon dioxide was a pollutant under the Clean Air Act, and that the EPA had to regulate it if it was a danger to public health and well-being, which it obviously is. There's no question that unrestricted greenhouse gas emissions are, are a grave threat. So uh, the, uh, President Obama has the tools under the so-called endangerment finding to, to deal with carbon dioxide. Uh, the issue is that The Clean Air Act is really better designed for new sources than it is for regulating existing sources. And and it would be a political and legal, you know, morass to substantially reduce existing emissions of existing power plants and cement plants and refineries using the Clean Air Act. I would certainly advise the president to use every tool uh, at his power. Um, But, you know, as I say, my disappointment to the president extends to the fact that he has not used the bully pulpit to explain to the public the dire nature of the climate problem. And if he wasn't going to do that to pass legislation, which is arguably a politically safer route than regulation, then I'm kind of skeptical that he is going to use uh, uh, the Clean Air Act uh, as much as is possible. But I, I, I just don't think the Clean Air Act is a great tool uh, for achieving the kind of reductions that the country and the, and, uh, needs.
1: We've got five minutes, so quick questions and quick answers. Yes. Okay. Um, Chris Page, Director of Climate and Energy at Yahoo. Um, a question about the controversy between Fre- Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the, uh, the PACE program. It's a property assessment clean energy program whereby uh, homeowners can pay for energy retrofits or solar over time through their property tax. My understanding is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are objecting to this because they're afraid it might jeopardize them getting paid in the event of a a loan default on the home. Uh, Can you give us any inside baseball on this in Washington? How are people talking about it? What are they saying? What do you think the outcome is going to be? And if you wish to weigh in on that topic, specifically, who should you call or email? All in 45 seconds, Joe.
0: Um, Well, uh, send me an email. Um... uh, you know, the great desire is to use the the mortgages to lower people's energy bills so that their combined mortgage and energy bill is lower than it otherwise would have and to fold it into some long-term payment uh, uh, as, as is their mortgage. Um, the trick is just who gets paid first, and you don't want to undermine the financial stability of organizations whose financial stability has already been weakened by the mortgage crisis. I, I think that this could be, in, in a normal political environment, I think it'd be pretty straightforward to fix this, um, because it's just a matter, I think, of changing the, how you specify certain aspects of who, who gets paid first. Um, uh, I'm hopeful that it could be fixed, Um, I think there are a lot of people who would like to get it fixed. But I I can't tell you that in in this political climate, uh, you know, everything needs to get 60 votes. And like I said, we live in a world where extending unemployment benefits gets filibustered. So uh, there are no simple legislative fixes to even pretty straightforward problems anymore.
1: Next question. Yes,
0: you're our uh, messenger, uh, messaging expert. And it doesn't seem that people like us, who are rational, reasonable, use facts and science and things like this, are making a big difference on the political national level, and we're getting beaten up, as you say, by the opposition. So my question, and and happy happy talk is a good phrase to use, time is getting short. What do we do to have that messaging be more effective? Is there a way? Yeah. Well, I, other than I mean, I certainly urge people to read Climate Progress uh, uh, and to to spend as much time, you know, reading up on messaging. I write a lot about rhetoric, the the you know, the 25th century old art of persuasion. Uh, there's no question that the facts per se d- aren't persuasive compared to an overall you know uh, uh, effective means of of communicating uh, that this is not just about facts, but it is about my Daughter, it's about uh, everyone's children. I I think, to be honest, with the progressive and environmental communities, made a mistake in that we don't talk about clean air and clean water very much anymore. Even though we gave the country clean air and clean water, it's now taken for granted. It's taken for granted so much that you have conservatives touting the fact that the air is cleaner than it used to be, without mentioning the fact that that's due to regulations that they opposed. Um, So I think it is a matter of personalizing this. Uh, certainly when you 're talking to individuals, uh, I, I think one has to bring it at a personal level i don 't think there 's any question that the state of California is ground zero for catastrophic climate change. Uh, I think the you know California is basically a desert, large parts of it, and you know read up on what 's happened to south uh, southern and, and, and southeastern Australia if you want to know what the future california is we 're talking about levels of soil moisture comparable to what was experienced during the Dust Bowls by the second half of this century, except instead of lasting for 10 years, it could last for 1,000 years. Um, And uh, uh, we're talking about losing the Sierra snowpack. I mean, you can certainly see the California Academy of Science exhibit. I I think one does want to personalize it. Um, And that does mean that if you want to talk about the issue, you have to be an expert on a lot of subjects. You, you know, and, and you have to know the science so you can answer the tough science questions. You have to know the, the impacts as best that you can. You have to know the clean energy solutions so that you don't just have a, 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 a doom and gloom presentation. You have to have the rebuttals to all of the pieces of disinformation which are so outrageous that, it, you know, it's, it's, it's nightmarish. Now, the good, the good news is that the Internet has put that all at your fingertips, so that you can become an an expert on every subject. But um, the alternative is to end our lives in bitter regret that we didn't try hard enough to avoid the catastrophe that everybody knows is coming. So I don't personally feel that there's any alternative. Yes, everybody who understands this issue has got to become an expert and has got to become a personal advocate in their own way.
1: We have to wrap it there. My apologies to the two people. Hopefully you can come up and ask Joe your questions. Uh, I think Joe just gave us all some homework to do a lot of research and become citizen scientists. Uh, thank you for coming to Climate One. Our thanks to Joe Rome for Center for American Progress. And that ends this program of uh, Climate One. <laughs>